You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Lyft posts the highest earnings in the company history as ride-hailing companies near a full recovery from the pandemic. Why supply seems to be finally meeting demand. Plus, Coinbase pops after its deal with BlackRock, reinforcing crypto status as a serious player on Wall Street. Is the crypto winter starting to thaw? We will discuss. And an estimated 40% of food processed in the U.S. goes uneaten. We will chat with a startup using AI to help grocers save up to 34 million pounds of food from going to waste. I want to get back to Lyft results with our own Jackie Davalos, who covers the company for us, along with Uber and DoorDash. So look, good numbers from Lyft. You know, is this the start of a broader trend? Have Lyft and Uber fully recovered from the pandemic? They're certainly edging a lot closer. Now, those numbers for rides are still a little bit under pre-pandemic levels, but what we could see here is that they're not sacrificing their profits in order to really boost those numbers. And you saw that come through just even in the language that the CEOs were uh, imparting to analysts that, look, you know, we went through really rigorous cost-cutting measures in the second quarter, and it was tough to bear with uh, employees being laid off and hiving off that car rental business, but what we're seeing is that airport travel is incredibly strong. A lot of that coming from air travel rebounding. Um, and you're also seeing, you know, these market share uh, battles between Uber and Lyft uh, intensifying. But I think a lot of uh, the concern around Lyft was that they were going to see some of that market share in their attempts to stay profitable. But we were not seeing that come through so far. Well, I did speak to Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi earlier this week. Again, Uber's results uh, strong as well and big positive investor reaction. Take a listen to what Khosrowshahi had to say. The marketplace is more balanced. The number of new drivers that we're adding in the U.S. is up over 70 percent on a year on year basis. Surges down. 
ETAs are down. Uh, so the business is really hitting in all cylinders and it's reflected in the stock price, which is great. So does a rising tide lift all boats? You know, I, I think cars. I, it, it certainly <laughs> seems to be because if you think about this shared rebound, both Uber and Lyft are benefiting from that. But where we started to see some of the divergence was in the strategies that they were taking to really get those drivers back. That's really uh, what's also driving the strong ridership because the more drivers you have to meet the demand, the lower your fares are going to go. More people are going to get back to the platform instead of, you know, opting to take the ca- uh, a taxi, a yellow cab. Uh, or the subway. And so, you know, Lyft acknowledged that, you know, a lot of that spend that really spooked investors last quarter was really coming through in fares to consumers. They were the ones uh, bearing a lot of that cost burden. And now that you're seeing wait times uh, coming down, you're seeing fares come down, uh, those ridership levels are, are recovering uh, and following suit. Meantime, if you did look for a weakness in uh, Uber numbers, and you pointed this out to me, Jackie, it was in food delivery. On the other hand, we're seeing strong numbers from DoorDash. What is DoorDash doing better than Uber uh, in this case? You know, I think with DoorDash, they are just, uh, you know, they started off as a pure play uh, core business that's focused on food delivery, and they've refined that to a T, and you can really see that come through. Their convenience business, they projected, is going to be profitable by the end of the year, and that's fairly impressive considering that they just launched it uh, less than two years ago. And so with Uber, you know, it's taken time for them to really um, tweak the way they match you know, certain orders with whoever's on the road. And now that they're really trying to cross-sell the rides and the delivery to both drivers and consumers, they've had a lot of work to do on the algorithm side, but they're certainly catching up. All right, Jackie Davalos, uh, thank you so much for helping us dig in. We'll be watching how these uh, on-demand companies fare over the next quarter. Elon Musk is poised to take questions at Tesla's annual shareholder meeting, dubbed the Cyber Roundup, taking place at his new plant in Austin, Texas. This year's discussion is expected to focus on a potential stock split and corporate transparency on everything from battery sourcing to workplace diversity. Here to discuss all that and more, Steve Wesley, managing partner at the Wesley Group and a former Tesla board member. Steve, always good to have you back with us. So what are you expecting this year? Well, first, I think you're going to see some awfully happy shareholders. Look, Tesla's share price up 40% just this year alone. Second, record revenues, 63.6 or 56.3 billion dollars last year, growing to 87 billion dollars this year. That's 62% year-over-year growth. No one in the auto industry is coming close to that. Second, profitability, no one expected. Tesla's gross or net margins, 17%. The other majors like Volkswagen, Toyota, people who've been making cars for years down at 6%. This will be their 12th consecutive quarter of profitability. Uh, That's awfully good news for investors and five factories up running full bore. So it's no surprise to me that Tesla's uh, flirting at a trillion dollar valuation. We'll see if we can hold it. But the big question today is going to be about corporate governance, ESG, How does Tesla deliver on those issues? It should be fascinating. Meantime, we are entering a really tough phase potentially in the economy. Even Elon Musk has said he has a super bad feeling about it. How does Tesla fare in a recession? Are people necessarily dropping money on new electric cars? 
Well, the fact of the matter is, Tesla's posting record sales. So if you want to buy a Tesla today, you're looking at a year-long wait. There is huge demand. The interesting thing is, how many can you actually manufacture? And that's where it gets interesting. I think Tesla's going to go from 925,000 vehicles sold in 2021 to 1.5 million this year. Other firms, GM, Ford, aren't selling a fraction of that. So the real question is, who's figured out the supply chain? Who has factories up and running? Again, Tesla, five factories, Reno, Fremont, California, Texas, Germany, China, all gearing up to full capacity. Most of the others have yet to break ground. So there's a lot of ground to catch up. We'll see how the others do. So is production still the main challenge, uh, you know, and, and how much does that have to do with continuing supply chain issues? Well, they're all intertwined. And again, I served on the board at Tesla 10 years ago. I think we made a lot of the mistakes in the book, but they've grown up and they're hitting the ground running now. Plus, they have long term supply chain relationships in place. That's why they're able to grow literally 60, 70 percent a year. It's heartbreaking to watch firms like Lucid that I'm really pulling for. They make a beautiful car, but they said they would produce 20,000 units this year. That's a pittance. Then they dropped it to 12. Now they've dropped it to six. So tough news for Lucid. But a reminder for all of us, it's a little harder to make electric vehicles than you might think. It took Tesla 10 years to get where they are today. It's going to be hard for others to catch up. We'll see how General Motors, Ford, and the others do. Well, let's talk about the competition. Which competitor are you most optimistic about? And, you know, which of these companies are really going to give Tesla potentially a run for its money? Well, let's start at the beginning. Mary Barra at General Motors said, we're going to catch up with Tesla by 2025. They're not. They've produced first half of the year 8,000 electric cars. Uh, they're way behind. Uh, they're struggling with supply chain, struggling with manufacturing. Ford appears to be rising from the ashes. They're going to sell, have sold 25,000 cars already this year with the E Ford 150s, a great car, and the Mustang. So they're rising for the, from the ashes while General Motors is uh, literally and figuratively uh, trying to put out fires. So as much as I'm pulling for GM and Ford, it doesn't look like they're going to be the real challenger anytime soon. Volkswagen is a whole head of steam up. They're going to do over 220,000 EVs first half of the year, more by year end. They're producing about half what Tesla is, but eight times more than Ford and GM combined. So VW is in a strong place. Global supply chain, manufacturing facilities on every continent, deep pockets. If anybody has a shot to catch Tesla in the short term, it's Volkswagen. Longer term, don't count out the Chinese, the world's largest producer of batteries, Chinese government subsidizing their batteries, currently producing more than half the EVs in the world, and it's the biggest auto market. So Chinese are going to come on quicker than people think in the near term. I'm just hoping as many American companies make the cut as possible. Don't forget, 30 new EV companies have come into the market in the last year, precisely the time the economy is slowing down. Expect a shakeout in the marketplace. Be careful. You're betting on winners, not the losers. Meantime, you've got the Twitter sideshow going on for Elon Musk. And even you, when we when we last spoke about this, were not happy about his behavior. It's been a huge distraction. Many Tesla shareholders and Tesla owners aren't happy about it. 
How much do you think that has hurt the brand? Has that hurt the Tesla brand? Has it hurt the Elon Musk brand? Well, look, it's a tale of two cities. On the one hand, you've got a nearly trillion dollar company, the most powerful brand in the auto world with zero marketing budget. If anybody had told you that would happen five years ago, they would have said that's a dream come true. But I think it could be too much of a good thing. And I think for many people, including the SEC, it appears to be something of a distraction uh, and it's something that I think uh, needs to be changed. I think over time, people need to realize this is a multi-trillion dollar smackdown. Who's going to control the global EV market, not just for cars, but trucks as well? And who's going to control the next big thing, which is the move to autonomous vehicles? This is going to be cutthroat competition. I think Tesla needs to throw every ounce of focus they can at staying in the driver's seat. Let me give you one example. Tesla's had the best, longest range, least expensive, most reliable batteries in the sector. They're now developing their new revolutionary 4680 battery composition that should be better at range, cheaper and greener than anything ever made. But CATL, the world's biggest battery manufacturer in China, claims to have some leapfrog advantages. This is going to be a fascinating smackdown. Tesla's going to need all the focus they can get. I'd keep the sideshows to a minimum. Whoever wins this next round is going to have done something special. If Tesla wins the autonomous race, it could be a $2 trillion company. That would be quite a trick. All right. Uh, Steve Wesley, always good to have you here. Wesley Group Managing Partner, thank you for stopping by. Okay, coming up, Meta's brand new report on global threats and in particular how the company is tackling a Russian troll farm. We'll have more on that from a top Meta executive next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Meta says it just shut down a Russian troll farm. The Facebook parent company releasing a quarterly report that outlines the actions it's taken against fake accounts and hackers who tried to create the appearance of support for Russia's war on Ukraine. Ben Nimmo, Global Threat Intelligence Strategy Lead at Meta, joins us now for more on this. So talk to us about this particular operation, just how widespread and effective was it? 
Well, in terms of being widespread, it was really trying to hit everywhere across the internet, pretty much all at the same time. What we had was a troll farm, so an organization run from St. Petersburg in Russia that was hiring people off the street to run fake accounts kind of everywhere on the internet they could think of. There's reports of fake accounts on YouTube, Telegram, TikTok, Twitter. We found them on Instagram. Um, and what they were trying to do was make it look like there was large-scale support for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So that's the widespread effect. But in terms of effect... All we saw was that they weren't very good at what they did. Um, a lot of their fake accounts kept on getting caught by the automated systems before we even investigated them and took them down. Uh, real people kept on calling them out as trolls. Um, and there were even cases when they would try to steer people towards celebrities or influencers on social media, and then they picked the wrong account. So, for example, at one point, they tried to steer people towards the UK Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss. And instead of finding the Foreign Secretary's page on Facebook, they found something that hadn't been used since 2018. So they were trying to spread themselves wide, um, but nothing we saw showed that they were actually having much of an impact this time. So it sounds like this particular operation wasn't very sophisticated. How unique was this operation? Is this something that you've seen before? We've seen attempts like this before in lots of different part, parts of the world. So, so we've taken down troll farms in the past, for example, in Nicaragua, in um, Albania. We've taken down other activity by Russian trolls as well. But there was an interesting twist to this case, and it's that the, the operation was really working in two halves. It was running a public channel on Telegram, which was trying to, if you like, crowdsource comments which were supporting Russia. And when it didn't get real crowdsource comments, it would use the fake accounts to go in instead. And it's the same operation running all these things. And then what the people behind the operation would do would be they'd do in the interviews on Russian state TV and, and supportive media and say, look what a great job we're doing. So it's like there were multiple layers of deception nestled inside one, one another, almost like a Russian doll. But ultimately, they were trying to make it look like they were effective, but they were using fakes to do it, and then the fakes got caught. In general, how effective has Russian, have Russian disinformation campaigns actually been over the course of the last several months of this war on Ukraine? We've taken down, I think, about half a dozen different Russian operations that have been targeting Ukraine recently, so since the war began. In general, what we've seen is that they've been struggling to get any kind of real engagement. Um, but we've also seen that they keep on trying, and this is the time to keep our foot on the gas. What we really need to do is, is take these operations as a lesson. We need to learn from them, and we need to keep looking, because we know threat actors like this are not going to go away. We need to take them seriously. And each time we find something like this, we need to explain to people, here's what it was. Here's how it worked. Here's the kind of content that they were pushing. Here's the way they were operating. Because this time around, they weren't very good at what they did. But we need to prepare for the next time. And that's what, as threat investigators, we always have to be ready for. Are you speaking directly with other big tech companies, Apple, Google, TikTok, Twitter, about coordinating efforts on this front? Whenever we do a threat report like this, we share with industry partners, we share with researchers, we share with uh, we share with the public. Right? We report these things, and that's because we found that that influence operations they're a bit like mold growing in your house. They grow best in dark places, and so when you find them, there's two things you really need to do. You need to clean them up. But then you need to shine a light on them as well. You need to move them into a bright place. And we've always found that the more we can share information about these operations, the more we can make people aware of how they behave, it's harder for them to come back. What keeps you up at night? I mean, we're heading into the U.S. midterms here in the United States. Have you seen activity uh, rising on that front? 
I'm a threat investigator, so investigations keep me up at night. It's it, it's what we all do on the team. Um, in terms of the midterms, sorry, uh, we haven't seen any uptick in activity um, so far. For example, this Russian operation that we've taken down was really focused on the war in Ukraine, and it was all about pushing the Russian point of view. But again, operations like this are a lesson. And one of the big things from the Russian operation was that what they were trying to do was use a fake operation to make a more public operation look like it was working. And this is something we call perception hacking. It's trying to fool people that there's something big going on. If you like, it's like dropping an ice cube into the water and saying, look, there's an iceberg underneath. And that's the kind of tactic which could be very easily transferred to other areas. So we have to take threat actors like this seriously just because they were ham-fisted this time around doesn't mean that they will be the next time. And so what we're looking out for as investigators and the thing that's keeping us up at night is making sure we keep ahead of whatever trends are out there. Meantime, we've been following the story about TikTok and the Chinese government or an entity uh, supported by the Chinese government trying to set up a stealth account on TikTok to target Western audiences with propaganda. You know, is this something that concerns you? If you look at our threat reporting over the last few years, we've taken down operations from around the world. We have seen operations from China, Iran, India. Um, I think it's more than 50 different countries that we, we've seen operations coming in from, more than two dozen different languages. And it seems like the idea is out there that influence operations are a thing. They're something that many different countries can run. And our job as threat investigators is to go and find them and particularly to shine a light on them and to share information about them as, as widely as we can because the more different eyes we can get on this, the more we can try and catch them. With the Russian troll farm, it was really interesting. The way it was exposed was the troll farm was trying to hire people off the street and telling them, hey, come and work for us. One of the first people they hired turned out to be an undercover journalist okay. to expose the whole operation. Fascinating. Uh, Meta executive Ben Nimmo, Global Threat Intelligence Lead. Thank you, Ben for sharing all that with us. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Legacy names in streaming and media out with more earnings results are Ed Ludlow back with the latest and Warner Brothers Discovery. Ed. Yeah, interesting. I mean, doesn't look great, right? Down 11% in after hours. They had a net loss in the quarter, which they attribute to costs relating to the merger between Warner Media and Discovery. Of course, that closed in April. And this was the first time investors really got a look under the hood of this combined entity. And I'm zeroing in on subscribers across HBO Max, other properties. Properties like Discovery Plus, they added 1.7 million subscribers, net new subscribers in the quarter. So let's compare and contrast because they weren't the only streaming name to report earnings this Thursday. Paramount up 1% in regular trading. Actually, Warner Brothers was up almost 5% before its earnings. But Paramount, across Paramount Plus, added 3.7 million subscribers in the quarter. So actually, even though it's a relative minnow in what we call the streaming wars, it's seeming to get some traction in its user base and adding new users. What they both had in common was the ad businesses really underperformed, which is interesting given what we've heard in the mixed picture of the global advertising market in recent weeks. Where do we stand year to date, M, with all these different names? We're zeroed in on who's doing well, who's doing not. If you look at the share price, actually Paramount is the relative outperformer, down just 16% year to date, but Netflix still really ugly, down 62% year to date. Of course, it had a shock in the first half of this year with the shock 
loss of its subscriber base, a more positive outlook for the second half of this year. But there are still big questions, right? In the face of great inflation, what's the consumer doing? That's a lot of option. Personally, I got a lot of choices. I subscribed to all these. I don't know if you saw Top Gun, great movie, that boosted Paramount. Can we have them all forever? No. I haven't seen it yet, Ed. I don't have time to go to the movie theater, but I will try to make it. Thank you. Okay, let's continue this conversation with Julia Alexander, Director of Strategy at Parrot Analytics. Julia, look, uh, you know, there's a lot to talk about here. Let's start with Warner Brothers Discovery. You know, clearly they're, they're making changes planning to make a lot more changes and there's you know some uncertainty about where this is all going what's your take Right. I mean, the first thing we have to do is, I think, almost step back from the amount of subscribers gained. So if we look at the subs gained, right, they gained 1.7 million. That's not much. They actually, according to their new uh, way that they report, they lost about 300,000 in the domestic market. But I think what we have to look at and what David Zaslav's CEO, David Zaslav's real game is, is what is the actual value of this content? How do we go through HBO Max and call some of it and, and Discovery Plus and call some of it in order to really ensure that we're hitting profitability on the fastest path that we can for our shareholders. When we talk about David Zaslav and his team's approach to streaming, it's different from what Netflix is doing and what Disney is doing, where they're increasing their content spend constantly and constantly. David Zaslav does not want to be in the content spend wars, as he likes to say it. Instead, he wants to say, we want to get to profitability. We want to get the most um, value for our dollar. And so what we're really going to see play out is how well that um, EBITDA and how well that OBITDA really comes into um, the case for discovery going for Warner Brothers Discovery going forward. What are you expecting Zaslav to do as they work to merge these two platforms? You know, there's talk about a big culling potentially of HBO Max. They're taking movies out of the rotation that are already filmed because they don't want to spend money on marketing. I'm thinking of the new Batgirl movie, which, as I understand it, has already been shot. Right. I mean, the key word right now is amortization. Amortization, amortization. When you're looking at the amount of debt that David Zaslav and his team brought in, you're looking at what you can do um, specifically with HBO Max. I think what we're going to see happen is less of a culling than press made it seem out to be that um, rumors made out to be over the last two days. It's been a lot on Twitter as analysts and industry insiders and reporters try to guess at what's going to happen with um, HBO Max. This report, the earnings report today was actually a little bit beneficial in that way. What we're seeing is that HBO Max skews male and we're seeing that Discovery Plus skews female. And before Discovery Plus came in, the HBO Max idea was to invest in more female-oriented content. So you have like the cooking show with Selena Gomez and you have um, the new Gossip Girl. And you have all these types of shows that appeal to a different audience to really widen that, widen that total addressable market. Market. But as Discovery Plus comes in, they're saying, well, we're already making this content. It's doing well on cable. It is a brand in and of itself. So we're going to bring some of that to HBO Max. And Casey Bloys, the visionary leader who oversees content for HBO and HBO Max, can focus on scripted content and scripted fare that works. So I actually think we're not going to see as much of a call as reports made it out to be. But that being mm -hmm. said, I mean, I think when we talk about streaming services, there is far too much content. We're in an oversaturated market, and it's never been easier for a subscriber to say, this is mediocre and this is great. So if content isn't performing, why keep it on the platform uh, is, is kind of the, the, the thought strategy that Warner Brothers Discovery executives seem to be having. Okay, so let's talk about Paramount Plus. As Ed said, this you know, service has, has been a minnow thus far, but it is racking up subscribers. Uh, the bottom line doesn't necessarily look great so far. You know, Top Gun, Yellowstone, which is one of my favorite shows. Are, are people going to pay for four streaming services, though? 
it, before inflation, before interest rates started hiking, I would say yes in the United States. Globally, we don't know. I think now we're looking at closer to two to three over the next little bit as people choose where they want to put their credit card dollars every single month. But that being said, I would say that Paramount, everyone has kind of looked at Paramount and said, you know, we don't really know. We're really um, bearish on Paramount and what they want to do with their streaming. And what I think Paramount really has going for them is that not only are they a great uh, streaming service and they're building a great streaming services and their numbers are increasing every single quarter, but they're also a great seller. They're someone who can license really in-demand content to Netflix and to other players and charge a hefty fee for that because their content is so in-demand, which means that people will pay to have access to it. So when I think we look at Paramount, you know, if, if the question three, four years ago, not even, you know, two years ago, the question was, which are the three services that people sign up for? And it used to be Disney Plus, Netflix, and HBO Max. And I think as the streaming wars, which is really just a colloquial term for proper uh, competition in the marketplace, as opposed to Netflix having a almost monopolization on the on the entire industry. I think what you'll start to see is a company like Paramount that can offer really great pricing on the ad front and also on the sub front that has uh, shows that people really want, that has the film franchises that people really want. I think you'll start to see them emerge as a really strong contender in the same way that I really have faith that HBO Max under Zaslav and even HBO Max under um, Jason Clark, the former CEO, I think that's a great product and combined Combining Discovery and HBO Max offerings in a really smart, strategic way that feels curated and human, but also scalable and accessible. Um, I think that's really going to help them even not maybe not surpass Netflix in terms of subscribers in the next few years, but definitely be worthwhile contenders. So are you saying if you're a betting person, you should be spreading your bets right now? I would spread my bets a little bit. Yeah, I think it's too early. You know, it's funny. I think we're trying to declare a winner in the streaming wars. Again, that term that really just means competition is happening. And it's far too early. We really need to see what a lot of these companies that have the theatrical studio components, that have linear networks, we need to see what their strategy is for handling all that type of content across a bunch of different revenue streams. And I think the key takeaway from what we're seeing as subscriber growth in the United States kind of slows down a little bit, um, kind of hits, hits a bit of a peak for certain streaming services. I do think the takeaway is that streaming is not necessarily the end game for a lot of these companies, but it is a very important support system for a lot of its other different investment uh, areas. And I think that's really key because it used to be that streaming was the only option, you know, two, three years ago, everything was streaming. And now it's, well, everything is also includes streaming. What about Disney coming up next week? What are you expecting there? It's been, it's been a tough ride for Bob Chapek. It's been a ride. It's been a ride for Bob Chapek. My major concern with Disney is the promise or the projection, I should say, that Bob Chapek and his team gave to the street of 230 to 260 million subscribers globally by fiscal year 2024. It's ambitious. That's an average of about 10 million subscribers per quarter being added. And eventually you run out of countries to launch in, right? That's kind of a guaranteed subscriber base. When you launch a new country, customers will sign up. So my biggest concern is what Disney will have to do on the Disney Plus front to really hit those projections unless they come in, you know, next week and say we're changing our projections. But I really don't think that's going to be the case. You know, as long as Disney has families and Marvel fans and Star Wars fans, they're going to continue to be a, a well-supported streaming service. But I think the bigger question now is to hit those numbers, you have to increase your total addressable market, which means bringing more um, Hamilton, right? Bringing more of that, bringing more of the West Side Story into the, into the Disney Plus sphere so that people can watch it. And I think in the United States, when you have Hulu, that becomes a really interesting conversation with what goes to Hulu, what goes to Disney Plus, um, and both are designed to support the bundle. And so globally, I 
think is where we're going to see what the future of Disney Plus really looks like under the star and star plus banner, where we can see how Disney, a, a, a much more four quadrant design Disney Plus can operate in both acquiring subscribers and then retaining them. Okay, Julia Alexander, thanks for breaking up uh, all that down for us. Appreciate it. Director of Strategy at Parrot Analytics. Appreciate it. Another story we are following, American basketball star Brittany Griner's nine-and-a-half-year prison sentence in Russia. President Biden is calling her sentence, quote, unacceptable and says the White House will work tirelessly for her release. Griner was found guilty of drug possession and smuggling after she was arrested at a Moscow airport with vape cartridges containing cannabis oil. The United States has been trying to broker a prisoner swap for her return. No deal so far. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. One of Wall Street's biggest traditional finance players is making a big bet on crypto. BlackRock teaming up with Coinbase to make it easier for institutional investors to trade Bitcoin. BlackRock chose to partner with Coinbase because of its scale in the market. Here to break it all down, our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik. Shanali, Coinbase investors loved this news. <laughs> it's so interesting, Emily, because if you look at Coinbase shares, they really took a leg higher today. It's up about 10% on the day. Pre-market, that jump was much bigger, so it paired some of those gains for the day. But it's so interesting, especially because Coinbase's shares have gained almost 40, more than 40% over three days. So you're really seeing some of the gains uh, come back to Coinbase, a stock that's down still more than 60% this year. I want to flip up the board a little bit and talk about what Wall Street really feels about Coinbase because you're seeing some, one of the biggest players come into it. Uh, the 12-month price target for Coinbase has also come down meaningfully among some of these larger challenges. Even with uh, some love from people like BlackRock, you have Coinbase's 12-month price target still really flying at around $100, $101 per share. If you look at it today, it's just below 90. Uh, if you flip up the board again, you still see, again, uh, with all the challenges, still love from Wall Street. About 58% of folks say buy, 25 say hold, which is basically, you know, we don't really know how to feel about things given all the volatility. 16% said sell. So there's been a lot of questions around whether the momentum would move to the downside for Coinbase. Emily, I have to say, what is also interesting is the opportunity provided here from BlackRock because this partnership, not just with BlackRock, but with a part of BlackRock that's called Aladdin, it gives you exposure not just to big institutional investors. A 
Aladdin works with a lot of wealth management platforms across Wall Street uh, and around the globe. And the reason that's interesting is it, it potentially exposes you not just to institutional clients, which is a growth area for Coinbase, but more people that can really fly into the more traditional retail business at a time when rivals like Robinhood are under a lot more pressure. What does this mean for Coinbase longer term? Obviously, the crypto winter is not over. You know, maybe maybe this is the beginning of something. But how much farther, uh, how, how much colder, how, how cold is the road going to get ahead? <laughs> so that's a question because it's all correlated to Bitcoin prices. And you saw something similar when it came to blocks earnings uh, that reported after the market closed today. This idea that transactions have really slowed. Remember, a lot of the retail investors that got into cryptocurrencies at the end of last year are very much in the red. And so how much powder is there left on the sidelines for investors to get back into it and volumes to come back again? The good news for Coinbase, is, and you saw it here with Robinhood just this week, when you see some of the rivals under pressure here, it is good news for Coinbase, and you saw it reflected in Coinbase's stock. Uh, but just for a sense of how far we've fallen for Coinbase, I mean, this is still a company that's under $20 billion in market cap. This was once $75 billion in market cap, and that was at the end of last year. So how quickly can Bitcoin recover, get back to 60000 70000 I think it has a lot to do with uh, whether Coinbase can regain its former glory and whether that even matters if people see enough crypto adoption moving forward among the big institutions uh, like you saw today with BlackRock. So, you know, what are you looking for next year? Obviously, we've seen a wave of, you know, difficulties for, you know, there's been bankruptcies, there's been increasing regulatory scrutiny, there's been this big letter from, you know, hundreds of skeptics to Congress, you know, what's going to be the next inflection point in the story of crypto? You know, we've been talking about it a lot, you and I, this idea of Coinbase versus the SEC. Why does that matter so much? Because exchanges, Coinbase, FTX, the more that they, uh, you know, don't part with the SEC, you wonder if they look more like traditional exchanges, like the New York Stock Exchange, like the Chicago, SIBO, the, the Board Options Exchange. FTX has been highly regulated, working with a lot more traditional players Players here, and you wonder if there's a future where people list a token, uh, they go public, they don't necessarily choose between the two or do both. Uh, the worlds are merging, so the question to me is how much does Coinbase embrace that? again, like you see today with a big institutional partnership, or how much uh, do they stick to kind of the heart of crypto, which was very focused on a decentralized finance and things that were so far away from Wall Street as we know it. All right, Shanali. Shanali Basik, thank you, as always. As much as 40% of food produced in the United States is never eaten. 40%, that is according to the National Resources Defense Council. Enter Afresh Technologies, a startup that is hoping its AI software will help grocery stores massively reduce food waste. They just raised $150 million in new funding, and they're on track to save 34 million pounds of food waste by the end of 2022. Matt Schwartz is the co-founder and CEO of Afresh Technologies and is here with us in the studio. Thank you for having me. So how does this AI technology work? So at Afresh, we believe that food, more so than anything else, shapes the health of people and our planet. And specifically within that, we think that fresh food is really driving the future of the grocery business and, and what people want to eat. 
At the same time, though, in building the company, we observed that most, if not all, of the technology was built for non-fresh stuff. It was built for things that come in a box and have a barcode and last a long time. And the result of that, in turn, is that there was all these processes that were not built for fresh, and that, in turn, would cause hundreds of billions of dollars of food waste across the world and a bunch of other problems. So how can AI help in the produce category? So what we're doing is building technology specifically for fresh food. Mm -hmm. And what that enables us to do is optimize the quantity of food that goes into different parts of the supply chain to be as fresh as possible, order just the right amount and not too little, and that causes us to be able to prevent food waste while keeping grocers in stock. How do you do that? I mean, even me as a mom, I, I, it's either too much or not enough. Yes. Whatever I buy at the store. It's a classic balancing act, and it's really, really, really tough. The way that we do it is we empower store employees at grocery stores with an app that's served on a tablet, and that's powered in the background by artificial intelligence that's trying to predict the future, how much is going to be sold, understand how much is in the store right now, and then use all that information to create a profit-maximizing, waste-minimizing order, keeping the shelves full while minimizing the inventory that's in the back room. So you're basically trying to fi figure out how to get grocers not to overorder, That's right. You don't want them to overorder. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you don't want them to underorder because the other problem we're seeing with the supply chain is those empty shelves. So what we really want to do is find that sweet spot where you go to the store and the shelf is full, but the food is, uh, they didn't order too much so that they are going to cause waste. Why is getting fresh food so difficult? I mean, mm. even when picking produce out at the store, yeah. sometimes it's, it's already going bad yeah. by the time I pick it up. Yeah. Well, a lot of this is going back to the original thesis of the company. We think fresh is the future, but fresh is just so tricky. When you pick a berry, it's basically a race against the clock until it's moldy. It's got to stay refrigerated. It's got to move quickly through it. It could be sold by weight, and so the data structures aren't there. There's no best by date on a strawberry. Mm -hmm. So everything in fresh is far more complicated, and that's why we believe you have to build fresh-first technology to be able to handle it. You've got nine grocery chains on board in the U.S. Right. How do you plan to get more? So we're demonstrating results. So we've shown to date that we prevent waste by about 15 to 25%, while also increasing sales by over 3%. And so success like that is generating word of mouth and happy reference customers for us that are really enabling us to grow super rapidly. How do you plan to use the new capital? really scale. Mm -hmm. So at the end of last year, we were live in 200 stores, and we've signed now, as of right now, over 3,000. So we're growing by over 15x. So we're going to use the capital to help us scale, and then we're going to go from our starting point in fruits and vegetables to meat and seafood, deli, bakery, all the fresh stuff around the grocery store. And then we plan to make our initial forays internationally and up higher in the supply chain. What was it like raising money in this environment? I mean, it's a tough environment. Did that impact your Valuation? What we're, is your valuation? We're in, a, we're in a bit of a unique place at Afresh where we're of service to this mission-critical industry of grocery. And I think during the pandemic, everyone came to appreciate that when times are tough, grocers are what really feed us, and share of stomach goes more towards eating in. And so we're of service to that industry that kind of is acyclical or can even benefit from tough times. And then we're tackling problems of inflation and supply chain. And so I think investors really saw all of that, mm -hmm. and they saw the traction that we had, and they were willing to bet big on us, which valuation. I'm really proud of. I can't share that right now. Okay. Well, what are your longer-term plans? I mean, are you looking to stay independent, go public, get bought by a larger food distributor? What's the goal? Our mission is to eliminate food waste and make fresh food accessible to all. There's trillions of dollars of fresh food sold around the world. 
our mission, what I believe we want to do is build a very big company that eliminates that waste and proliferates across the supply chain. So whether that be a standalone company or eventually IPOing, my plan really is just to try to fulfill that mission. And how does this impact the suppliers on the back end quickly? So like, to- is it worse for them because, you know, grocers are ordering less? The dynamic we live in is that population is growing from something like 7 billion people to 9 and 10 billion people. So we've Contrary got- to what Elon Musk has <laughs> I mean, no comment. <laughs> but what I will say is that population is growing, and we're out of land. Uh, we're burning down the rainforest to create enough land to grow cows. Yep. And yields are going to be impacted by climate change. So we have to find ways to do more with less to be sustainable. And so at the end of the day, when we drive efficiencies at the store, growers upstream are really appreciative of that as well. All right. Matt Schwartz, CEO and co-founder of Afresh Technologies. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Really interesting. Thank you. We'll keep our eye on you. All right. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Great show coming up tomorrow. Lyft co-founder John Zimmer will be here. Glenn Kelman of Redfin and Reid Hoffman. Always love talking to him. That's tomorrow right here on Bloomberg Technology. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.